As you all are seated, I will uh, give a, an addendum to Pastor Jim's exhortation regarding our building campaign. In the next couple of weeks, we've got some big decisions to make, decisions that will pretty much uh, put us in a position where we can't change down the road. And it's about $6 million worth of decisions. We're in the home stretch. And to this point, we've spent about six million, but we need another six to finish. And we only have about nine months to go. That's it. Somewhere around March, April, we're supposed to be in this building, but that's without any delays. And we are doing all we can to build with cash. We've committed ourselves to this point to say we're not going to take a construction loan, we're not going to take a mortgage, and by the grace of God, we've, we've been able to spend six million dollars as a result of your kindness and generosity. But we have to commit to the other six million and once we do we cannot turn back. So if we don't have the commitments nor do we have the cash, combination of both, then we have to delay the project until we get it. So we are believing that everybody who calls this place home, you dear visitor who have been here for three years, <laughs> and you remember that you will really act like it's your house that you'll, t you'll care for it and you'll give toward it and you'll help us finish this project or find some people who will. We're believing God and we're believing he's going to move through you. So come next week with that in mind. Turn with me to the book of Philemon. We're going to finish our study in Philemon today. We're going to look at verses 12 through 25. And for those of you who have not been here in the past, Philemon is a book written by Paul to Philemon and three other parties, Archippus, Apphia, and the church that meets in Philemon's house. The nature of the letter is to see how in the world Philemon and a man named Onesimus, who is a former slave of Philemon, can get the relationship repaired. Onesimus has left Philemon's charge under the cover of darkness probably he escaped in his escape he also probably took some things with him that were not his Philemon is probably angry and Onesimus probably don't want to see Philemon again and Paul is trying to figure out how he can get this relationship fixed so he's giving some exhortations because now both of them have become their friends Philemon Paul had won to the Lord at some point and now Paul has won Onesimus to the Lord and so he feels like the go-between in terms of reconciliation between the two. We look at verse 25, and we have Paul speaking. And he says of Onesimus, verse 25, excuse me, verse 12 through 25, verse 12, I have sent him back to you in person, that is sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but out of your own free will. 15. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but much more than a slave. A beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. 
But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Verse 19. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own life as well. Verse 20. Yes, brother. Let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, 22, also prepare me lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Lord, help us as we study. Paul uses phenomenal deference and authority. Here's a man who has authority in both of these men's lives. He won, he won Philemon to the Lord and he won Onesimus to the Lord. Even though our egalitarian democratic society doesn't have much regard for uh, titles and authority, we like to think everybody's on the same plane in America. That's not the way it was in the day that Paul wrote. Spiritual fathers, mentors, were considered of, of, of a different level in respect than you. And you were responsible to treat them with great honor. Yet Paul is the one who doesn't take his authority by grasping it, but he uses it by way of influence rather than command. He says, let me suggest some things. He's confident enough in his relational connection with these men that his relationship can leverage the will of God in their lives and that they feel devoted to him and to God to such a degree that he doesn't need to command them. He is a master at being able to use his authority properly rather than just always showing his bars on his shoulder. He's amazing. He really is. But he defers here with his authority. Onesimus is a disciple who's got to comply with what Paul says and then Philemon's the guy who's offended he's the one who feels betrayed and hurt because Philemon, excuse me, Onesimus has, has left with some stuff we believe and so Paul is trying to figure out how do, I, how do I get these people that I love dearly as brothers together and reconciled and, and there are four pieces to this passage of scripture one, there's Onesimus' return He's got to go back. Two, there's Philemon's receiving of Onesimus. He's got to have a heart that does more than just say, hey. Three, there's Paul's willingness to pay Onesimus's debt. And four, Paul is asking Philemon to refresh his spirit by his generous reception of Onesimus. Let's talk about Onesimus going back. And I don't know that I have experienced more relational courage than this moment right here. I don't know that I've seen it. Paul is asking Onesimus to go back to his master, a guy that he has fled, escaped, and probably taken things from. And remember, this letter is probably supposed to be carried by Onesimus. And I don't know when the conversation happened between Onesimus and Paul. 
We do know this, that Onesimus was in Rome. Paul was in prison, not in a physical prison, but under house arrest, which many probably had some privileges of going shopping along with some soldiers, the equivalent of an ankle bracelet in our generation. And maybe he saw Onesimus in the market, and he said, Onesimus, good to see you, because Paul had won Philemon to the Lord, and he knew Onesimus. And I imagine he's looking at Onesimus thinking, this is a long way for your master to send you for groceries. See, Colossae, the town from which Philemon was, and Onesimus, is in the country we now call Turkey. Rome was in Italy. That's probably a good 800-mile walk. <laughs> what you doing in Rome, Onesimus? Yeah, about that... Um, yeah, uh, relationship was established, and Paul led him to the Lord. He got right with God. Now, I imagine much of this has a backdrop. Sometimes you have to read what's not in the page, between the lines, to understand the context and the relational dynamics of all the people involved. Paul is, is, is telling Philemon, Philemon he needs to do some things. But Paul at the same time is saying, I led him to the Lord. And the, the, the thing that's not said is, Philemon, he was with you for a long time. Why didn't you? What happened here? How was I able to lead him to the Lord in a short period of time? And yet he grew up maybe in your house and you never did. It's not said, but it's implied. I led him to the Lord. And now he has become a wonderful servant to me and a son. I don't know how long Onesimus was there with Paul, but it was long enough whereby Paul could now commend him as a faithful servant. And that would take some time. We know Paul was in prison for two years in Rome during this time. So maybe Philemon, excuse me, Onesimus was there someplace around a year, six months. And then at some point in the relationship between Onesimus and Paul, Paul has to tell him things that he doesn't want to hear. Now, I don't think he told him right when he got born again. I think he was waiting for the maturity of soul to develop whereby he could hear well. Onesimus, we got to, uh, we got to deal with this, this issue of you and Philemon. To which I believe Onesimus, if he was anything like Breck, would say, why? <laughs> he was a slave master. I was a slave you think it's a good idea for me to be free, right? And Paul was an advocate of anybody who was enslaved to be free. He said it in 1 Corinthians 7. If you are a slave, seek your freedom. Paul, I'm free. And you can't ever commend slavery as a, as a necessary good institution. So this is a good thing. You want me to go where? Now this is Brett speaking. I don't know what Onesimus would have said. But I would have had a frank conversation. You want me to go back to my slave master... A man who was offended with me because I not only left under the cover of darkness, but I took some stuff too. I needed some provision on the road. You know, a slave ain't got nothing. You, I can't just go out with that empty-handed. You want me to go back? Yeah. But you believe it's good for me to be free? Absolutely. And in this letter I'm going to write, which you will deliver, I'll advocate for that. But there's a way you need to leave if you're integral believer there's a way you need to leave and you didn't leave right 
you left offending somebody. You didn't leave just, just apprehending your own freedom. You took something from him. And that's wrong. You got to make it right. Can I just write a letter? No, this has got to be a face-to-face thing, bro. Okay. That okay? Enormous. Enormous. Let me give you the picture. Onesimus receives a letter that Paul is writing. This one. And he's walking, uh, taking a donkey, maybe a boat ride that's about four days, but donkey, three weeks, walking, three months. And he realizes something on the way. When Onesimus sees me, excuse me, when Philemon sees me, he's not going to have the benefit of the letter that he needs to read that I have. So when he sees me, he's not going to be happy. He's not going to be happy with me at all. It's like this. You remember when you were offended by somebody? I mean, they really hurt you. I mean, they deeply got down in your craw, betrayed you. It hurt immediately. Six months later, eh, not so bad. By the way, time heals nothing. (laughs) Just FYI, heals nothing. What you do in the midst of time heals a lot. But time itself is just a unit of measure, measure. In fact, people can get more bitter over time. Time heals nothing. You better be productive during the time if you want to get whole. Those that are not, even though the the sting of the moment diminishes because you now neglect the pain, you forget about the offense, six months, a year later, it's not on your mind every day. But don't see that person in Walmart. (laughs) Don't find them in Safeway. No, 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 no. All of a sudden, it all comes back as if it were yesterday. This is what Onesimus is concerned about when he sees Philemon. He won't have the benefit of the letter yet. I'm carrying it. So when he sees me, oh, it's all going to come back and I'm going to be in trouble before he ever reads. And I don't know that I'm going to have the opportunity to say, read the letter, read the letter, read the letter. (laughs) But he says, I'll go. Courageous. Courageous. Not just because Paul says it, but anybody who does this in the climate of Rome, which was a slave-oriented society, not just tolerated, advocated. Anybody who does this has some spiritual capacity that is enormous in their soul. They don't just want to please their, their immediate supervisor. They're looking toward God, saying, I desire reconciliation. I want you to be pleased more than me to be happy. I want to make it right in the earth. Help me, oh God, to do that. Onesimus is huge. And you really can't get to your destiny. You cannot get to where God wants you to be by bypassing all the people with whom you have ought. Now, you can go to heaven. You can go to heaven. Ticket stamped. Not dependent upon how you relationally connect with anybody. That's just how you connect with God. But if you want to fulfill the purpose for which you've been established on the earth and be a witness of God's grace to humanity that does not know who he is or what he looks like, then you cannot bypass all the people you have hurt to get there. I.E. Jacob. Of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob 
and Esau were brothers. Isaac was their daddy. Rebekah was their mama. Esau was the elder brother, though they were twins. But he was considered the eldest because he came out first. Jacob came out a couple of minutes later. They were fraternal, not identical. Esau was very hairy. Red hair every place. Don't even know what that looks like in a baby. <laughs> Esau was, excuse me, Jacob was very smooth. He didn't have much hair at all. So they looked very, very different. But Esau was the eldest. And Esau was a, was a man. He, 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 he shopped at outdoor shops. All, he went fishing, bass fishing and, and hunting and had on, he wore, he wore camos to work every day, though he worked at McDonald's. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this was Esau. He was a man's man. And, and Isaac loved that about him. I mean, he, Isaac, you're my favorite. You're, oh, you, you everything a man wants to be a hunter. <laughs> and Jacob kind of hung around mama. And he loved cooking and loved, loved cleaning and loved shepherding. And he was just kind of homeboy. Well, one day Esau went out to get some, some food and hunt, and Jacob was home, and he had cooked some food. And Esau was unsuccessful in his hunt. Came home three days, no food. And Jacob had a pot of stew there. Esau says to Jacob, man, give me some of that stew. I am hungry. Jacob says, um, okay, if you give me your birthright. Now, this, this is why you should read about Jacob, Genesis 26 through 50 because it will encourage you because he was a mess and God used him <laughs> this guy was a mess I mean a mess if he could use Jacob he could use you <laughs> yes yes it's possible because what brother when your brother comes to you and says may I have a drink of water says give me everything you got <laughs> who does that what is wrong with this guy you give your brother a drink of water. I got a brother. I have never held his feet to the fire when he asked me for something, much less tried to take everything from him. But Esau was worse. Esau said, what good is a birthright to me if I'm dead? You're not going to die without eating for three days. What's wrong with you? And it says that Esau despised his birthright and sold it for a pot of stew. Now the birthright, which was that which put you in line to be the person that would inherit the double portion of the blessing. Every child got an inheritance, but the one who had the birthright, which generally was the firstborn, got a double portion. Got the portion that every other child got, but then got another portion on top of that equal to what every child got because their responsibility as the eldest child was to care for everything that was the father's. So in their elderly years, mom and dad would have somebody who would provide for them and care for the family business. This is why it's important for you not only to get born again, the blessing that every Christian gets, but to have the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is that which allows you to care for the Father's business and ministry. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other sermon. Fine, I'll go to the Life and the Spirit class and you'll be helped. But the firstborn got the birthright. Well, he sold his birthright for a pot of stew to Jacob. Later on, though, they had to do some manipulation because they weren't quite sure whether, whether God was going to really bless them, them meaning Rebekah and Jacob, who were in cahoots with this thing, trying to figure out how to make this happen because Rebekah heard from God that Jacob was to be the one who inherited all the blessing of the daddy, Isaac. 
But whenever you hear from God that the Lord is going to do something, you're not the one that's supposed to pull it off. <laughs> FYI, he doesn't need much of your help. He just needs you to obey and do his will. He's not asking you to pull off what you're not supposed to. He's not asking you to substitute yourself for him. He's asking you to trust him, even when it doesn't look like it's going to happen. He's asking you to trust him and to not get your filthy little grubby hands in the middle of it because you're going to have to fix what you break later. Are you listening to me? That's important. You need to get that. Rebecca and Jacob, they tried to manipulate it. I mean, she heard from God that he was supposed to be the one that inherited everything of the father. But she used her manipulative strength in order to pull it it off and it messed up everything so even though now Jacob was in line as the firstborn because Esau had sold his blessing it doesn't mean you absolutely get it it just depends on the disposition of the father Isaac is older now somewhere between 80 and 100 and his eyesight is pretty much gone now unfortunately I can identify with this I wear contacts or glasses if I don't have either I can't see who you are I don't know whether you're black or white. You are just this amorphous blob. I'm serious. It, I have poor eyesight. And the bad thing about poor eyesight is when you can't find your contacts or your glasses, you can't see to find them. It's doubly bad. I'm 52. He's over 80. His eyes are really messed up. Rebecca and Jacob concoct this plan whereby after daddy says I'm ready to give the blessing and he sends Esau off to go hunt for something, a, food, a meal, so that they can fellowship around the, the blessing moment with a meal. Rebecca and Jacob then say, you know, we got to pull this thing off because daddy's about to give the blessing to Esau. We can't have that happen. So why don't you, why don't you go prepare a meal and then I'm going to do some stuff to make sure that you pretend like you are Esau and it's believable. So I'm going to get some goat skins and put them on your hands and put them around your neck because Jacob was smooth and Esau was hairy. Does that tell you anything about Esau? That he felt like a goat? I don't know. I, this was some kind of man. It felt like a goat. Felt like a goat. <clears throat> and then you go into your dad and pretend you are Esau and he will bless you. Jacob falls for it. He says, good idea. So they get the stew together. They go into Isaac. And he's got these gloves on, if you will, and something around his neck. He says, daddy, I'm here. Isaac says, how in the world did you get that food so quick? He said, oh, the Lord blessed me. Flat, he just flat lied just flat lied well who are you I'm your son Esau well, come here let me see you sound like Jacob and he felt his hands and said oh yes my son Esau feels like you Harry <laughs> he says okay come close and I may bless you and then he hugs him and feels around his neck and he smells him he says oh Esau the smell of the field my boy <laughs> I guess Esau and water weren't good friends Take a bath, bro. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> and he blesses Jacob. Blesses him. Gives him the blessing of the firstborn. A couple hours later, Esau walks in. Esau says, Daddy, I'm here for the blessing. He says, Who are you? I'm your firstborn, Esau. Says that Isaac trembled violently. He said, Your brother has deceived me. I have blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. Don't you have anything for me? I can't take back what I've given. Indeed, you will serve him all the days of your life. At this point, Esau had had enough of Jacob. 
whereby the only thing that made him happy was to think about how he could kill him. Literally, it says that Esau was comforted with thoughts of killing Jacob. Rebecca, his mama, both her mamas, both their mama, knew and said, you got to leave because your brother, he, he's hot. So he went to, to uh, Rebecca's brother named Laban somewhere about 90 to 100 miles north and stayed there for 20 years, 20 years. Had all his babies, got married, had all his babies, got wealthy with flocks. And then God told him while he was with Laban 20 years later, time to come home. This is your land. This is the place where my people are going to call home. And this is the people in this land through whom I'm going to bring my promised Messiah. Come on back home. So Jacob takes all his family, his wives, his, his livestock, his sheep, starts heading back. But he cannot get back except that he go through Esau's property. You can't get to your promised land by bypassing all the people you offended. You just can't. One of the most difficult periods in all of Jacob's life was, was trying to figure out how am I going to survive this? Because I really messed him over 20 years ago. I mean, I really blew it. And I don't think I'm going to live through this and all my, my kids are going to die because I made a mistake. I was treacherous. God. And when he got to the place where he was about to cross over to Esau's territory, he spent the whole night in prayer. And as he was in prayer, it says that a man came out and began to wrestle with him. And all night he wrestled with this man. Now, who do you think Jacob thought it was? Esau. He thought it was Esau. Dark, not knowing what it was, he wrestled for his life. But he was really wrestling with God. Because all of a sudden, when, when he just wouldn't quit, says the angel of the Lord touched his hip socket that made him weak and unable to continue. And he said, I'm changing your name from Jacob to Israel. And I'm about to bless you. And then it says the angel disappeared up into heaven. And Jacob, Jacob said, oh, I've seen God and I've lived. Oh, God. It was a tough night for him, yet a marvelous night. But remember, every time you're wrestling with people, you're wrestling with God. You think you're wrestling with your adversary. You're wrestling with God. He's trying to get at something on the inside of you so that that which is on the inside doesn't kill you. It doesn't stop you from your progress. It doesn't prohibit you from doing what he wants you to do. He's getting at something on the inside of you. He wants to change your nature so that you can be better suited to fulfill his will. The man who went into that night did not come out. He was a different human being the next morning. Please understand, God's interested in fixing these relationships. And it's not about just you and him getting right. It's about you getting right with God. Onesimus, you can't get to your destiny by bypassing Philemon. You got to go back. <sighs> okay. It's a long walk, bro. I mean, it's a long walk every day. He gets there, and now Philemon's got his job. 
See? Philemon has to receive. He's in the position of saying, you took something from me. You stole from me. And I'm not happy about it at all. And I'm, everything on the inside of him wants to do something about this. Yet he is restrained. If he would read the note, which I believe he did, he is restrained not only by the mercy of God, but by the exhortation that comes from Paul to say, do the right thing because as you treat him, you treat me. He is restrained to do the right thing. And though he would want to call out judgment and penalty upon, upon Onesimus, he doesn't do it. And hear me, we think we have really jumped a very high bar when we have forgiven somebody. We think we've come to a new level. I have obeyed God and I've done what most of human, human, humanity would not do by forgiving them and releasing them from their debt. Hallelujah! Most people wouldn't do what I'm doing. I forgive you. But there are two other levels to which we need to go if we want to be mature in our relational integrity. It's not just about erasing somebody's debt and forgiving them for everything that they have done. No matter how painful it was, it doesn't even compare to what you did to Jesus. No comparison. You think you're in pain? Jesus was in pain more than any man in history on the cross. No man suffered as much as he did, yet he forgave you of all your junk. Your pain does not compare. It is real, but it does not compare, which gives you no excuse to not forgive. But Jesus, Jesus raised the bar above that. And, and when he was on the cross in pain, he didn't say, Father, I forgive them. He said, Father, please forgive them for they know not what they do. We, um, we usually don't step into that arena because this is how we posture ourselves when it comes to the relational offense. Okay, I've forgiven them. I'm not going to hold it against them. I release them. Fine. It's not mine to repay. Vengeance is not mine. It's God's. So if you'd like to do your job, have at it. I don't mind a bit. As evidenced by the fact that when something untoward happens to the people that did bad to us, we rarely weep. There's something on the inside of us that says, you got your comeuppance. I'm sorry. We try to be theologically correct with our words, but in our heart, we kind of say, serve you right. Serve you right. I didn't do it, but God got it. You can't play with God. You can play with me, but you can't play with God. <laughs> you want to come to a mature level? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then, Paul doesn't even stop there. I mean, that would be huge enough, wouldn't it? That'd be huge. Paul didn't stop there. Paul says, I know he's, he's done some things to you, and I know he's hurt you deeply, and I know you don't want to get back with him, but what I'd like you to do is forgive, and I don't want you to have God do anything. To, I want you to ask God not to do it. And I want you to not just restore him, but I want you to elevate him. <laughs> the man stole from me. You want me to give him a promotion? Are you kidding me? How is this possible? 
You want me, you want me to treat him as a brother. And then on top of that, you said, if you regard me as a partner, meaning Paul, Philemon, if you regard me as a partner, regard him in the same way. You want me to make him a partner? You want me to put him on my staff in the church? He stole from me. And you want me to regard him as a... Wouldn't it be enough if I just forgave him? Restoration for you did not look like God just forgave. (laughs) He has treated us so much better than we deserve. He not only forgave our sin, wiped out all of our iniquity, and we, we, we did a lot wrong and deserved a lot of consequence and a lot of judgment. That would be enough. But he then said, I'm, I'm not even going to bring you in as a servant. I'm going to make you my son and my daughter. I'm going to give you the privilege of being somebody who inherits what I have. I'm going to write you in my will. You former antagonistic enemy of mine. I'm going to write you in my will. And then on top of that, I'm going to make you a compatriot in the ministry. I'm going to let you come alongside and work with me in this. You're going to be my partner in ministry. I'm going to invest all of my power and all of my resources in wisdom and understanding so that you can, you can be an agent, an ambassador of my will in the earth. Exactly what Paul said. Family member, partner. This is what reconciliation, this is what, this is what restoration looks like. If you want to be like God, if you want to be a good example of your ministry of reconciliation, and we all have that, if you're still searching for your ministry, let me help you with one until you get it. 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're now new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. And we now understand that God has reconciled the world through Christ and given us, verse 18, the ministry of reconciliation. Not counting men's trespasses against them. In verse 20, 19, not counting men's trespasses against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This is your ministry until you find the specific thing for which he placed you on the planet. The ministry of reconciliation. And you are to enact that and to, to, to bring it about in every relationship that you have. Now, some of y'all were really, really good sinners for a long time. And so you may not be able to have enough time to fix everything you did wrong in somebody's life. But the Holy Spirit will bring to mind all those people that you hurt. And he will heighten the ones that need to be adjusted. The relationships that need to be adjusted. He'll heighten those. And you need to get back and say, I'm sorry. Or you need to say, I forgive you, even if they have not asked for it. This is, this is what relationships look like in the kingdom. This is relationships 101, students. Relationship 101. This is how God treated you, and he expects you to treat everybody else the same way. Otherwise, it's hypocritical that you receive and not give. God help us. And then Paul says, if you have a problem beyond the fact that he offended you and that you now have fewer resources because he left with some of them, I'll pay him. Boy, here you have a good lesson in leadership. I'll pay him. Anybody willing to be the mediator between two people who can't get along 
and then say, I want you to know, if the issue is how much they owe you or what they did wrong, charge it to my account. And Paul is acting like Jesus because we could not pay our debt, yet Christ did. We are to be the people that represent Christ's embodiment on the earth. And when people can't figure out how to make it right, we stand in the middle and say, charge me. If you can't forgive them for everything they did, I want you to take it to my account. Make me your debtor. What we do then is show how much we care about this relationship and how much we are willing to lay down our lives for other people's benefit. Most folk don't know nothing about this. This is the ministry of reconciliation. This is what it looks like. Paul was just amazing. And then there's accountability. Accountability. (laughs) Paul says, refresh my spirit. So he's saying... Even if you don't have any motivation because you are still mad at him. Though you may have forgiven your emotions. Just can't be fixed yet. Refresh me by treating him well. And remember, I'm in prison. I'm in a relational desert right now. I need a drink of water. Could you please give me one? Refresh me by treating him well. And then he says, by the way, I'd like to come and visit. Prepare lodging for me so that when I arrive, I have some place to stay. Now, again, reading between the lines. I don't know that Paul needed to take a vacation in Colossae. Don't know. But I do know that Paul believed in accountability. And if, if somebody would not have observed his suggestions, he wanted to make sure that they knew He was coming. Accountability. You know, our leadership in this church, uh, we're far from great. But we try really, really hard. We work at it. We try to be really good Christians, not just good employees. And because we work at trying to be really good Christians, it makes us pretty good employees. But we have accountability questions that we go through in our leadership. The elders do, the deacons do, full-time staff. And they, they go something like this. We get together and we meet and after we do devotion and prayer. Um, have you been in the Word and prayer? Have you spent good quality time with your family? Are you giving in the form of tithe and offering on a regular basis? Have you been with a person of the opposite sex in a way that might be seen as compromising? Oh, you, you really have to... You have to Ask yourself, do I want to be close to these people? Do I really want to be close to these people? This, this is what we do. And then we ask a couple more questions. The last of which is, have you, have you lied about any of the answers you just gave to these questions? <laughs> we believe in accountability. Because there's too much at stake. Too much at stake if I fall, my family gets messed up. Y'all get messed up, you get all mad at me. And then I become the guy you fill in the blank with. I don't serve Jesus because of bread. That's what the body of Christ does. Immaturity reigns so much that when a leader falls, they fall. Stupid, but it happens. He gets blamed for every sin and ill that is in the body of Christ. He becomes the icon for hypocrisy. That's what happens with me if I fall. Not to mention the fact that my testimony gets ridden away. And for the rest of my days, nobody can hear me ever 
like they heard me before. There's too much at stake. I can't fall, but I can't live by myself. And so I intentionally tie myself to people who will ask me questions like that. Paul said, I'm coming. Go check on you. Find out how you're doing. Reconciliation is important. If you have a relationship that is splintered, if you have a marriage that's messed up, and one party feels more at fault than the other, or one party feels the other is responsible more than they, it's vital that you fix that and become an agent of change rather than somebody who is distant. If you have a friend that you've been in, in, in tension with and have issues and betrayals been there, you need to figure out how to fix that. A supervisor, a co-worker, you need to figure out how to fix that. Because God wants reconciliation to be available to anybody who finds himself in relational tension. Here we have a beautiful example of how to do it. None of us have any excuse. Let's pray.